Well, this week I was uh, privy, privy to a very troubling rumor. I won't name names, I will not reveal my sources, but I need to discuss what I heard because I think this thought has infiltrated a lot of people within the church, maybe ours, but the church in general. It's a topic that's very confusing. So here is what I was told. Don't tell anybody. It's between just you and me. Keep it kind of quiet. It was whispered to me in hushed tones that someone believes that because Jesus fulfilled the law, they no longer have to live by the law. Because Jesus fulfilled the law, they said, I no longer have to live by the law. Included in that statement that I heard, it's the idea that the Ten Commandments are no longer we're responsible for anymore. I think they also include in that statement are any of the commandments, obligations, decrees, and imperative statements you can find in the Bible. But the question I have, is that also true for things like loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, or loving your neighbor as yourself? Is this rumor true? I don't ever have to have to live by the law. I don't have to do what the scriptures say. They're just good suggestions, but not mandatory expectations because Jesus already fulfilled all of them. Theologically, yes, this is true. Theologically. Bible-believing Christians in general have agreed throughout the years that we are no longer under the law, but we're under the gospel of grace. As one theologian put it, the law says, do this. The gospel says, it's been done for you. As it relates to our standing with God, that same theologian said, do this and you'll have life. Fail to do this and you'll surely die or you'll feel this. If you don't do this, you are guilty, guilty, guilty and no good. That's what the law says. The gospel says, Christ has accomplished all that's required of right standing with God. So, in other words, I do not have to perform the law to procure God's blessing on straight theological grounds. However, what is implied by this statement is a certain attitude concerning a walk with God that is the farthest thing from what he really wants. What's implied by this is some troubling, I think, Beliefs. One of those is, it makes it sound like I don't need to feel obligated when it comes to knowing God. Because spiritually speaking, now I'm off the religious hook, Jesus did it all. And this is good news, isn't it? I don't have to do anything. This is good news for many because I've heard people say, trying to understand a transcendent, invisible God who's wrapped in majestic light, how to connect with holiness is so confusing and so beyond a simple-minded, regular, dim-witted Christian like me. How can they expect me to know? Personally, I know I'll always fall short of intimacy like the great apostles, like Peter, Paul, James, and John. I can't be like them. Or some of the saints in the older traditional church, I'd go, we'd venerate them, and I would pray to them, because they were just on a different level than me. Or Moses himself. He went up to the mountain, and when he came down, he saw God, and his face shone like the sun, and he had to put a veil over it. I can't reach that. 
I know I don't compare to the biblical heroes, so how can God expect me, warts and all, to understand the deep things of heaven and eternity? Now that Jesus has gone to heaven, I don't have to worry about it. So the first statement is, I no longer need to feel guilty. I think the second implication is, trying to please a perfect God is just difficult. It's impossible. It's a burden too heavy for anyone to bear, and God doesn't want us to stress out because no one can do it. Now that Jesus did all the heavy lifting of procuring my salvation, I am free to live as I want. I can just sit on the proverbial Christian couch, prop my feet up on the footstool of grace, kick back and relax because everything is done. Man, that's good news. I think that's what that implies. I think the third thing it implies is I don't need to change my behavior. Why, you know... Why would I want to be a good, goody, goody Christian in the first place? It seems so boring, doesn't it? I'm so glad Jesus made the Father happy. That means I don't need to be religious. I'm free to just be me. I mean, who wants to live a dull life? That's what the Old Testament is, a dull and dry old book. It's like if I try to live by it, it's like living in a jail cell. Now I can be free like the rest of the world just have fun that's what it means to be free so if Christ has set me free the cell doors are open and I can find fresh air and just live the way I want not not what that means I think these three things without overtly saying it is how people react when they hear we're free in Christ I think that's what instantly goes to their mind we no longer have to be chained to a boring religious life where grandma shushes you, shh, you're in church. Quiet. Or your mom makes you wear those scratchy sweaters during Easter. Remember those? I had a big, thick yellow one, and oh, I hated it. Chris, you got to wear that. It's Easter. All the ladies will like it. What I want you to see today, however, is that Jesus, instead of saying he fulfilled the law so I don't have to, Jesus fulfilled the law, so we get to. We get to live by it. We get to live for him. We get to find in him true life and freedom. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. We're going to look at verses 11 to 16 and 20. The title is, We Get To. So instead of being governed, condemned, beaten over the head by the law, in Christ, we can now look forward to following the principles and implications of the law because they're good for us. Here's what it says. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. If you want, we do have Bibles in the back. That really nice one. Nice few Bibles now. Scott, we got some while you're away. You got yours? Very nice. If you turn to page 292, you'll find it there. But here's what it says. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, oh, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? No. The word is very near you. It is in your mouth 
and in your heart, so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then, then, you will live and increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. Look at verse 20. That you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're going to follow three principles that because of what Jesus has done and because of what we have through faith, we get to live with him. But you have to first perceive what Moses is saying here. And first thing he's saying is life with God is not a hidden mystery. Nor is it a secret club meant only for the spiritual elite. Listen to verse 11. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. Pastor, I enjoy your preaching and how you teach the Bible at Kent City Baptist. But if you really want to experience God, well you say it like this, if you really want to experience God, come and join our study and prayer group. Because when we get together, we really meet with God. I'll never forget this discussion. It was my first year here as lead pastor, and an older gentleman came in to help me and to offer me his wisdom and advice. He wanted to help me lead the church. And in his mind, even though I kept the Bible center at my preaching, there was more for me to learn and to experience if I really wanted to get in touch with God and his abundant life. There's more out there for you, Pastor. It seemed to him that finding this more with God was something only a few enlightened people really understood or experienced. And if you go to the right place at the right time, approach God in the right way with the right emotions, then he will really show up. True Christianity sounded like joining the Marines. It's only for, for the few, the proud, and the elite, the Christians. This search for more, finding the hidden spiritual higher plane, is known in ancient history as Gnostic heresy. For over 2,000 years, Gnosticism has taught that only a certain select few people those who are really sold out and dedicated are able to get in touch with the higher, and you say it like this, mystical realms. It's very spiritual. And you do this through secret knowledge or a very ancient ritual or exciting emotions and having the right kind of music. This elite group contains the only ones who can really know God and experience God. And they'll often say, come join us. And they give that smile. So to get to that higher plane, deep heavenly secrets are either learned or passionately sought after. Sold out is the term. Romans 10 talked about the Jews having zealousness for God. Zeal is this idea. Inside of you is this bubbling excitement for God that rarely do people have but those who are sold out. 
And when you're properly sold out, you will finally know how to pray with power, like the select few prayer warriors battling on the front lines of the gates of hell. It's only a few of them. You will finally feel the movement of the Spirit in your soul when others don't. You will be an eyewitness to real miracles on a scale never seen before. And you'll sing in such a way that brings God close. Those who learn these trade secrets will finally encounter the more of God. And they are the real Christians. But those of us who just go to church on Sunday and read the Bible, probably who never hear the voice of God and all we really can look forward to is dry, churchy life. We're the peasants. Just peasants. Peasantry. For some people who have been taught this, because they never had the experiences like the elite club of the mystics, they either quit trying to find God, and many just give up on God altogether. I've seen it. I've seen secondhand where first generation people have these experiences, and second generation are trying to conjure it, and if they don't conjure it, and they don't have those same feelings, then they're just like, maybe I don't know God. But according to Deuteronomy 30.11, look at what it says. God doesn't work like that. It says, now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not beyond your reach. God invites all of us equally, peasant and priests and prince alike, to come to him. You can find him daily because he makes himself known daily. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they communicate. And if you go down Psalm 19, it doesn't talk just about nature. Nature is the, basically the work of God. It talks about scripture is where you really find God. It's the word of God. God communicates in general revelation through nature and in specific revelation through his word to reach us, and it's not beyond any of you. Romans 1.19 says, what may be known about God is made plain. And then 2 Timothy 3 says, the scriptures, since you known from infancy, can make you wise and are profitable for faith and life. So a man of God or a woman of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So don't let anyone make you feel like you're spiritual lower class because you haven't had an experience or you haven't heard a voice from God or contemplated deep mystical revelations. God has made himself known to all of us regardless of our station in life or intelligence and he's not beyond our reach. Go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, Just I've been meditating on this this summer, this book. And I just went to verse 1, and I, it stopped me in my tracks. Because it's one of those greetings. But listen to what Peter, the apostle, remember Peter? He's the guy that was number one. He's the first pope. He's the guy. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, this is the guy that caught all those fish, was up in the Mount Transfiguration with Jesus, Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. 
In the NLT, it says, who's on equal level with me. All of you are on equal level with Peter through faith. That blows my mind. That blows my mind. So, we have no excuse for not knowing him, which leads us to point number two. Life with God is not meant to be a heavy burden. It's not meant to be. It's meant to be a life of faith, filled full of the promises of God that we receive by belief. Look at verses 12 through 14 back in Deuteronomy. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it. And this is talking about religion. Who's going to go get it? Work up the ladder to get up there, the stairway. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea, who will do all the work to get it. No, 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 no. Verse 14, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. I'll give you an illustration. You might have heard this before, but it helps solidify what I understand by the law. In living for the law. So my grandma was a tough bird. No nonsense, strict and demanding. My sisters, Gina, Stephanie, and I often had to spend a number of weeks at her house in the summers. And life with Grammy was all about keeping her rules. We had to do it her way, and even though I loved my grandmother, I did not like staying at her house. I actually hated it. I hated it, and you'll understand why. It was Graham's way or the highway. So every morning, we had to sleep until 9 a.m. I was given a scratchy blanket. I think she got it from some army surplus store. I was given a scratchy blanket, a thin pillow, and I had to sleep on hardwood floors. And as a seven-year-old boy who was used to waking up early, about seven in the morning, I had to lay on my back until nine o'clock on that rotten, ice-cold floor. She had a foster son who got to sleep in his bed while I was stuck next to his bed on the floor. And I remember laying on my back, staring around the room, and he had all these plastic horses on shelves. I'll never forget it. And those horses mocked me. They were mocking. <laughs> At breakfast, we would have only Graham's type of cereal to eat. No Lucky Charms. No Frosted Flakes. No Apple Jacks. Anybody like Apple Jacks? Oh, I love Apple Jacks. You know, we had rock-hard grape nuts, stale raisin bran, oatmeal with ration sugar. Not too much of that brown sugar, mind you. And you know that Oatmeal package had that smug Quaker Oats guy. He always looked like he was laughing at me, too. Everybody's laughing at me. Or worst of all, if you don't want that, my grandmother always had some cream of wheat, a.k.a. gruel. Did you ever have cream of wheat? Oh. And here's what she said. Whatever you eat, you got to eat everything. Waste not, want not. So if you had cereal, you also had to drink the milk. Oh, I hated that part. The morning and afternoon, we had to stay out of the house. She lived in a strange planned military community called Greenmont, Dayton, Ohio. And the funnest thing to do in Greenmont was to either blow bubbles or go visit the cemetery. It was a blast. (laughs) Nothing like jumping off gravestones of fallen war veterans. Man, that's fun. We dared not come back home before lunch or dinner time because she'd put you to work either helping her hang laundry with wooden clothespins on the line or scrub 
the kitchen floor with pine saw. Remember, pine saw would burn your nose hairs. Remember that stuff? Oh. She always wore a white apron and had those, like, think clunky nurse shoes. I don't know where she got them. Whenever she wore that outfit, it was work time. I'd often sing with my sister while we're hanging up clothes on a clothesline. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Lunch, we ate outside on a wobbly old picnic table with dry red paint that was always chipping off. We were usually served egg salad sandwiches, or we had to eat leftover cold chicken from supper the night before. My sister Steph, though, knew the trick, how to hide the food you didn't want to eat in the juniper bushes in the front yard. My grandma never caught us, ever. (laughs) After lunch and dinner, we'd have to exercise which meant marching around a room while she played John Philip Sousa marches on a record player or some polka on the piano. At night, we would watch either the Lawrence Welk Show, Hee Haw, or Little House on the Prairie. A lot of fun, Graham. And then bedtime was 9 o'clock sharp. Sundays, we'd go to Ascension Church where she'd sing in a choir, so that meant we'd sit in the front row near the choir wearing our Sunday's best. And on the way home, she'd make us sing... Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a... Grandma, I don't want to sing it. I don't care. It will make you feel really good. Oh, rules, 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 and more miserable, no good, dirty dog rules. And if I wanted to live in peace with my grandma, I had to keep her rules or it'd be sent up early to go back to sleep on that hardwood floor where those horses were still laughing at me. So for a young kid, grandma's house was prison camp. He how was right. Gloom, despair, <laughs> tragedy on me, deep dark depression, excessive mi- Missy, how many times have you sung that song? A lot, really? It's good old country. So what got me through the week is the question. Thinking about the moment my mom and dad drove up in their paneled station wagon, entering from outside to come into grandma's house and saying, you don't have to follow these rotten rules. Don, it's my house. Ma, you're not going to make my son eat those grape nuts all year. Chris, I'll make you some bacon. Bacon? You know how expensive that is? Yeah, I love my son. I'm not going to make him eat gruel. That's the law. We couldn't rescue ourselves from grandma's rules in the same way we can't save ourselves to escape from the demands of the law. This is what Deuteronomy is talking about. Look again at Deuteronomy 12 and 13. Who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it? Is it beyond the sea? Who's going to cross the sea? No, the word's very near you. And I'll show you something even more interesting. Go to Romans chapter 10. Paul was studying this in his quiet time, and he wrote about it in Romans 10. He did some biblical exegesis on this Deuteronomy 30 passage, and look at Romans 10, verses 5 through 8. Paul's quoting this same passage, and he makes an astounding statement. Romans 5. He writes, Moses, Romans 10, 5, Moses writes this about the righteousness by the law, so he knows who wrote it, Moses wrote it. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that's by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. 
Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Here's what he's saying. Jesus did all the work. He's the one that came down from heaven. It's called the incarnation. When he was sent from heaven to become a man. So in Bethlehem, he was fully man so he could do the will of God and fulfill the law for you and me. And what does it mean by he was risen up from the deep? He rose from the dead to prove that he fulfilled all that God required. And so you know what's left for us? Faith. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. While Jesus does all the work, faith believes and receives it. The best way I like to look at faith is faith is not a work. It's something God has designed us to do. Let's say I'm hungry, and I ask my mom to make me dinner, and she makes me spaghetti, my favorite meal, and she puts it before me. She did all the work of making that spaghetti. So let's say I take my fork and eat it. That's faith. I just receive the meal. But if I take credit for that meal, I start eating the spaghetti, and you say, aren't I so proud at how I made the spaghetti dinner? No. My mom made it. All I did is receive it. When I talk about salvation and I say, look at me, Jesus made the meal, all you're doing is by faith receiving it into your life where it becomes a part of you. It's amazing. It's amazing. Jesus came down from heaven at the incarnation. He rose up from the dead during the resurrection, lived perfectly in between these two two great events. And like my dad to rescue me from my grandma, he came from the outside in, Jesus came in to rescue me from the tyranny of the law. And now we believe and receive and live all the promises that God gave us. You could say life with God is all about living by faith. And as the classic reforming definition is, true faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed in his word, meaning his promises are true. But it's trusting in those promises. And it starts working in me, knowing that Jesus has procured is yes. It's all yes. He did it all. I receive it all by faith. And then the moment I receive it, my heart starts changing, which makes the third principle true. Life with God is real living. It's real living. Go back to Deuteronomy. Listen to what he says. Starting in verse 15. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Which one do you want? I mean, it's... it's all right, I'll make it easy for you. What do you want? Life and prosperity? Or would you like to die? Come on. What do you want? Well, golly, I'll take the death and destruction. Sheesh. I set before you today life and prosperity. Well, how do I get it? Verse 16, for I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws, and you'll live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering. You know, I'd still rather die than that. Really? Verse 20, verse 20, that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord's your life. He's your life. 
He'll give you many years in the land. He swore to give your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Man, he's good. This is the point. Jesus didn't fulfill the law so we would be free of God. He fulfilled the law so we could finally live with God. Because life with God is real living, thriving, prospering, goodness, joy, love. The law is meant to lead us to Christ, and Christ leads us to seeing that God and His will expressed in His law, the principles in His law, like the Ten Commandments and loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, is the best thing for us. One writer said, love naturally develops as a fruit of faith. Naturally develops as a fruit of faith. Love. Which means, when a person is saved by faith, the life of God is aroused inside of them, and you begin to see His law, His will, in his ways in an exciting new way. It's not drudgery. It's not. It's real living. And I'll show you what I mean. Okay. When it come, when it, what comes to your mind, what comes to your mind when you hear the word Sabbath? Sabbath. What comes to your mind? Some of you conjure up a lot of ideas. For many of you, it sounds like spending a day at my grandma's house. <laughs> Do I really got to march to John Philip Sousa on Sunday? Nope, that's work. Don't do that. But you do have to eat the grape nuts. Oh. You can't do anything fun on the Sabbath but sit and suffer. It's terrible. Is that the intent by the Sabbath? Listen to what Jesus says about the Sabbath. Listen to what he says. The Sabbath was not made for man, but man. Well, the Sabbath was made for man. I read that wrong. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God gave us a day to rest, to stop the world, to look to him, and to trust him. He's going to take care of it. While you stop working, he'll still be working. He's got you. He didn't make the Sabbath for misery. It was for our good. Look at that guy. He's suffering, isn't he? Poor guy, he's got to rest and enjoy the day. How miserable. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to take one day a week and love God. It's like for you. So if we would allow his will in all our life, it will always result in our good. Think about it like this. When it comes, I'm going to give you three commandments, and I'll talk to you about it like this. When it comes to the Ten Commandments, why... Doesn't God want us to kill our neighbor? Boy, what a terrible law. God doesn't want me to kill my neighbor? Man, I wish the purge happened. I know a few people I'd get rid of. Gosh, what a burden. Maybe, maybe he doesn't want us to murder because he made everybody in his image and everybody is dignity and is priceless. And you have no right to take someone's life, even in the womb. Maybe. How about this one? Why, this is a hard one, why doesn't God want us to commit adultery? Such a burden. 
Maybe because he sees the damage that occurs emotionally to a spouse who's cheated on and the children caught in a wreckage. The lie of romance always fails to deliver. Always. It's bankrupt. Last question. This is, a t- this is a tough one. I can't believe he commanded this. Why doesn't God want us to completely disrespect our parents? Maybe because God knows what it's like to be a father who loves his children, who keep running away. God's ways and God's will are for our good, not our misery. He's the best thing for us. And that's why he wants us to want him. It would actually be an unloving thing for God to want us to love anything more than him because he's the only one who can completely satisfy. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not so we can be set free from God, but so we can find our freedom in God. We get to follow God. It's incredible. And according to Deuteronomy, it's not hard to find him. According to Deuteronomy, his will is not mysterious. According to Deuteronomy, he's not out of reach. According to Deuteronomy, saving grace is in your mouth and on your heart so you can obey it. Talk about making it easy. God's not a tyrant, but a merciful and kind father who's for us. Gnosticism, this idea that I've got to find the secret thing and I've got to work harder than other people to really get more is a bunch of baloney. It's like my grandma's cold chicken. Baloney. Because, and here's the reason why, God is daily serving us the steak or the bacon that my dad would make in the morning of faith. And when I accept God's word by faith, oh, it satisfies my hunger and my thirst. As one writer has said, the most difficult part of life with God is not trying to find him, nor is it following and obey him, nor is it being with them. It's simply deciding to start now. I think Satan's biggest lie is how we perceive God and his will. And it all started in the garden. And he did it with that voice. I always use that voice. He says, ah, so. So, Adam. God doesn't want you to eat that fruit. Why not? Because he doesn't want you to have fun. He doesn't want you to enjoy life. He doesn't want you to be all you can be, so go and eat it. Satan is playing on our FOMO, fear of missing out. It's a lie. You know, when you're on Instagram and on Facebook and you have that fear of missing out, do you notice, you know that most of those pictures are lies, by the way? We're having a great time. I always like to say, we ever turn on TV and the commercial has them ordering pizza and they order pizza and they're just so happy. Hey, yeah. Most of the time when people eat pizza, they're fat and they're just kind of lazy. I don't want to go over eating pizza with that guy, but man, on the commercial, a party's happening. Let's go to Domino's. And then you go to Domino's and it takes them forever to give you your pizza. And it's usually <laughs> burnt, rotten. It's FOMO. It's a lie. So Satan, he's lying to you. 
Because the opposite's true. When I leave God, I get nothing. That's true missing out.